0: this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor of Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. Uh, my prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at Amen. Well, occasionally somebody will send me a uh, uh, something screenshotted uh, from social media or something of this nature. And if that happened, if you happen to post this, uh, just understand I did not see your personal account because I do not follow you most likely because I don't use social media nor post or watch your uh, your social media. But I was sent a, uh, a quote and asked what sort of my opinion was on this. And I want to just clarify, uh, sometimes lies are just the twisting of the truth. There is a truth that just needs to be slightly twisted in order for um, it to become a lie and easily accepted into uh, the church. And I think that we're going to see this here as Satan is able to use these slight distortions of truth to create division in the church, where often what happens is there's two different camps, two different groups, and you've got to choose one, and the one hates the other. And so a lot of times I think Satan tries to work within this to create division so that God doesn't get the glory, and instead the culture sees the church trying to operate and sees the division and wants none of it. This divides churches, divides, divides cities, churches, and it divides denominations, and it will ultimately divide the kingdom of God if we allow it to move into our hearts and into the lives of those around us who are believers. We have to be careful to protect ourselves from this. And so I want to read to you this quote. And I want to help us understand this so that we might be better at interpreting uh, uh, quotes and interpreting uh, uh, what people say and trying to understand if it's a little distortion of the truth, if it's the truth, or it's a radical distortion of the truth. And so I'm going to read this out loud to you. It says, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to a changed and fruitful life to die to self and live for him. His call is transformation of life, not affirmation of identity. Now here is the problem. This is a slight distortion of truth. There probably is a little bit of tension in this room right now. you probably like, you may be like, Man, that sounds good. You may be like, man, I'm already deciding I'm in this camp or I'm in this camp. You may already be in this moment like, I don't agree with most of what you said but we're going to walk through a couple verses that I hope will support uh, uh, how we engage culture and how as a church we unite around a singular effort. But what happens is we, again, we, ch- we have to choose between one camp and another. And usually what happens is the church is either a condemning church or the church is a conforming church. Right when I said those words, I bet in your mind, a church came up in your mind. I think that what we do is we all of a sudden think like, oh yeah, yeah, this church is this way, or these people are this way, and this church is this way, and these people are this way. And we get so divided out that it makes it seem like there's only two options. We are either condemning or conforming. Even this quote makes it look like we can either appear inclusive, tolerant, accepting, or we can call people to transformation of life. But I don't think either of, either of these are accurate. And I want to challenge you as you read through God's word to prove me wrong or to walk through God's word and let it transform your lives because I don't think that you will find Jesus sitting with sinners, sinners like me and like you, and engaging them in the way that this quote says. You see, here's, a, here's one of the foundational issues with this. Anytime you start off your thought process with how to engage the world with them, you've messed up. We have to understand first that we are sinners, redeemed and saved by God. And anytime we talk about people who are sinning or in a lifestyle of sin, we have to first understand in humility that that is us too. Aside from the grace and mercy of God and redemption of God, I too I too was broken and needed Jesus. I think as we engage this text in in Luke, as we're going to walk through Luke, you're going to see this, but I but I hope to be able to kind of sort of show you how to read into this. Look at what it says. It gives you two options. You can either Uh, eat and appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting, or you can call people to a changed and fruitful life to die to to self and live for him. If you eat with people and are accepting and tolerant, then it will lead to, as this quote says, an affirmation of identity. If you eat with people and call them to uh, a changed life, uh, fruitful life, and die to self and live for him, it will result in transformation of life. Both of those statements are false. Both of those statements are false. Look, we have to stop acting like in Christianity there's two options, either condemn or conform. We have to stop acting like calling people to a changed and fruitful life, to die to self and to live for him is transformation. It's not. That's not transformation. There is a difference between calling somebody to transformation and transformation. It would be like if you said, man, I, I think I, I, I'm a butterfly. No, you're not. Do you know what can transform into a butterfly? Is it a caterpillar? (laughs) Caterpillars. Caterpillars can transform into butterflies. It's unbelievable. I'm serious. That is an unbelievable process. Just because you say, change your life, live a different life, I'm calling out the sin in your life, that's not transformation. Transformation does not occur because we tell people what they do wrong. Transformation occurs because Jesus Christ came. He lived a life, died a death, raised from the dead, and he sent the Holy Spirit into people's lives, waking them up, taking them from death to life, separating them from sin and bringing them into righteousness. Jesus alone can transform lives. And he does it through the Holy Spirit. You see, the biggest problem with this is, it makes it seem like as long as we tell people that they're sinners, they'll be transformed. And the Pharisees go wild. You know what I'm talking about? Every Pharisee's like, yeah, that's exactly what you should do. As long as you tell them what they're doing wrong, as long as you tell them that they're evil, and as long as we have all these other tactics that can lead them to good, they will be perfect and right. That was the tactics of the Pharisees, and the church thinks that we have to adopt either to condemn like the Pharisees and call people to change and be transformed without the Holy Spirit working in their lives, or we have to conform and become like people and sit with people and not ever tell them the truth in love. We have to choose one or the other, and there Jesus is, who is neither condemning or conforming, and we have to ask the question then, what did Jesus do? Which is ultimately what this sermon series is doing. And if the answer is Jesus would rescue sinners, then we need to look at how Jesus would rescue sinners. One of the issues that we have with quotes like this and lifestyles like this is is essentially this. You could go to someone, sit down with them, tell them where they're wrong, lead them to do what is right, Lead them to deny themselves, live for Christ, do what Christ has called them to do. You could call them to good works. You could call them to reject what they've done. You could get them to a place where they're like, man, I'm doing a lot of great things. I'm doing good. I'm not a sinner anymore. I don't <coughs> follow into those things anymore. I'm no longer like that. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them and they say, no, I'm good. That's the biggest issue with what the Pharisees were doing, and that's the biggest issue with what could happen to the church today is we could get to the point where we just want to lead people from what they're doing and make them do something that's better, and then all of a sudden when Jesus comes, they feel like they don't need Jesus because they're all better. The gospel message is not transform your life, change, be fruitful, die to self, and live for Him. The gospel message is that Jesus died for you that you might live. Our response to the gospel message is that we might die and live. (coughs) I'm sorry, man, third sermon. hope that as a church, we don't feel like we have to choose between condemnation and conforming, but rather we can choose to follow after Jesus who showed us a different tactic. It's been what the series has been all about, and I want to walk you this morning through Luke. Three different passages in Luke, starting with Luke chapter 13. As you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, I want to remind you that what we're talking about is how Jesus sat with the sinners like us, sinners like us, sick, and with the saints. And remember, when I say saints, what I mean is perceived saints, those whom thought they were good and thought they were holy, but in reality needed Jesus, didn't didn't recognize it. Jesus sat with the sinners like us, with the sick like us, and with the saints, perceived saints. And when he did, he encountered and engaged them differently. With sinners, he most, uh, like us, he typically forgave them because of their faith. With the sick, he healed them, often for no reason. And with the saints, or at least the perceived saints, he typically rebuked them, didn't even allow for them to turn in repentance because he came for the sick and for the sinners and not for those who thought they were good enough because Jesus knew that no one was good enough and so I want to show you three instances of Jesus interacting with people in Luke starting with Luke 13 verses 10 through 17 it says as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years she was bent over and could not straighten up at all When Jesus saw her, he. Man, thank you, brother. You do deserve that sabbatical. You are the man. (laughs) Uh, She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, I want you to see in verse 12 Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. Now, what do you think he saw in this moment? I want you to think back and try to take yourself into this moment and see Jesus looking at a woman bent over, disabled by a spirit, evil spirit that's been in her life for 18 years. Imagine what she's done imagine what that evil spirit has caused her to do imagine whom she's hurt imagine the pharisees off to the side just like they did with the with the with everyone else tax collectors and the drunkards and the sinners like you and me imagine them off to the side watching this take place as jesus comes up to her and he sees her verse 12 it says when jesus saw her he called out to her woman you are a sinner repent from your sin deny all your sin turn from all those who are sinners around you and reject all the evil that you've done Come on, church, that's not what it says. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her and he said, woman, you are free of your disability. He did not ask her, will you first give up everything you've done wrong? He didn't ask her, hey, will you first reject those people that you've been hanging out with? He didn't ask her to come clean of everything that she'd ever done. He said, woman, are, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and what? Began to glorify God just like everybody else in Luke who experiences the miracle and salvation of God. They bring glory to God. Verse fourteen, but the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd. And remember what happens when when Jesus brings salvation, the people who experience it bring glory, the people who see it, who are perceived saints, they get mad. So they say, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, don't, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for eighteen years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the the glorious things he was doing. What happens when God changes people's lives? They bring glory to him, and everybody around it brings glory to God because of what he's doing. But the religious people get angry. Why? Because they think that the Sabbath was made so that people would obey it and follow it, and Jesus knows that the Sabbath was made so that people could find rest and salvation. And if people are going to find rest and salvation on the Sabbath, then why would Jesus not heal someone who for 18 years has never experienced rest and salvation? You may be sitting here today tormented, burdened by the sin that engages your heart. As Romans 6 tells us, it's like being a slave to sin. We cannot get out of it. It's controlling us. It is it is eating our souls alive it is making us do what we would not normally do you may be sitting in here this room and you think 18 years it's been 30 man i i think that some of us just need jesus to sit down beside us and say man you are free woman you are free if you've been hearing your whole life, you've got to come clean. You've got to fix up. You've got to make it look pretty. You've got to do all these things. You've got to wear these clothes. You've got to sing these hymns. You've got to sing these contemporary songs. You've got to do all these different things. If you've been hearing that your whole life, you've got to tithe this amount of money. You've got to do all these different things. And if you do all these different things and now you'll put yourself in a position where God will bless you and forgive you and make you free and you'll be set free and you'll experience all this bliss and all this glory. You've been told a lie because there's nothing you can do There's no amount of separation from sin that you can get away from that is going to save you. It is all by the grace of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in your life that you will find freedom. This woman just needed to hear, you are free. Can you imagine what it was like for the Pharisees in this moment? I I think what they would honestly say to her, or maybe have said, I don't know, this is not biblical text, okay? But I could just in my mind see them saying this, woman, rest. She's tormented by spirits for 18 years, and they probably would have looked at her and just said, why don't you just rest a little bit? Why don't you just figure it out? You'll be all right. And Jesus sits down with her. You are set free. Luke chapter 18, verse 35 through 43 as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front of, uh, in front of, told him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And you can, in your mind's picture, in the previous story, them saying, woman, why don't you just rest? And and you can literally see it in this one. Man, just sit down, back up. Don't get so close to Jesus. You're getting to, your your sickness is going to mess him up. Your sinfulness is going to mess back up from Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you, Lord? He said, I want to see. I want to see. Can you imagine how long this man had been blind? He could not see. He could not see. Now back up. Jesus saw her. Jesus heard him. She couldn't see. He couldn't see. They couldn't live. And Jesus comes and he says, Receive your sight. It, whether Jesus sees you or hears you, what he knows about you, no matter what he's seen in the past or uh, uh, no matter what you're doing in the present, no matter how far you are away, no matter how sick you are, no matter what you can't do for him, no matter how good you are at serving him, no matter what your fruit looks like, it does not matter. What matters is Jesus is compelled by compassion and grace to, to, uh, to save those who are sick and sinners. It's actually fascinating to me, because honestly, if you study these texts, and and all I'm doing is walking through different verses um, where Jesus engages the sick and the sinners, but if you engage these different passages, you're not going to find Jesus going, hey, you need to repent of your sin. Like, right when I say that, most of you in here should go, what? Jesus doesn't do that? He doesn't study the passages. Look at how Jesus engages the sick and the sinners. There's one time, possibly twice, though it's probably not part of scripture. Uh, it was added later at another date, and we know this to be true. There's maybe one time where Jesus says, hey, you've been healed. Now go, don't sin anymore, because if you do, it's going to have greater consequences in the end. And what I believe he's doing there is sh- showing him that that separation from God is not going to be good for his life. But he has, it has nothing to do with his salvation and the miracle that he, God does in his life. There's one time in all the miracles and the salvations that Jesus does it at the very end when he's going off to live his life. Every other instance Jesus has with miracles and salvations, Jesus simply says something like this, your faith has saved you. But sometimes, this is what's radical about who Jesus is. I want you to see the very heart of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Sometimes with Jesus, he doesn't even need to see faith. It's unbelievable. The compassion and grace of God, he just walks up to people and he heals them. Now, I'm not saying that there's not faith there. I don't know these things. Scripture doesn't testify to it, but here's what I do know. There's a, there's a woman walking out of her city, and in a cart, she has a man, and he's uh, her son, and he's passed away, and she's walking out with the cart, and Jesus walks up, and he has compassion. He simply has compassion on them. He has grace on them, and he brings the son back to life. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't stop the woman and go, I saw what you did yesterday. Now you hear me bring this up a lot, because I want you to know in your heart that Jesus didn't come up to you and go, I saw what you did yesterday, you can't follow me. I know what you did last week. I know what you did last month. I know what your life has been characterized. You can't follow me. Instead, what he walked up to this woman said was, your son is going to be alive. And he raises him up to life. Like He doesn't ask her to get clean. He doesn't raise the boy up and he's like, hey, uh, are you still going to sin? Your life has been characterized by sin. Are you going to change? No, he raises him up to life. They go off and they bring glory to God. That's what happens in that story. Jesus is characterized by compassion and by grace to go to those who are lost and alone and afflicted by sickness and by sin, and he goes to them, and he simply saves them and delivers them, sometimes before they even say a word. Like verse 12 of the previous uh, passage we saw, he simply comes to her, And he calls out to her, woman, you are free of your disability, before she even said a word to him. Now, what happens when salvation or miracles occur? Verse 43, instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. What happens when miracles happen? What happens when salvation happens? People bring glory to God. Not only that, all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God, it says in that passage. When people see lives changed, they give glory to God. You've heard me say this last week, and you'll hear me say it again this week, because I want us to constantly hear this truth. Why? Because Jesus constantly shows it to us. You cannot read the Gospels without seeing this truth over and over and over. But as long as we hear the world, all we're going to see is we have to either condemn or conform, but there's not another option. And then all of a sudden we look at Jesus and we're like, what is happening here? Who is this man that walks up to people and saves them and then they bring glory to him? Who is this man? And we constantly ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And this is what he would do. Yeah, you can imagine, imagine the disciples, the Great Commission, right? Uh, Jesus comes to them, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Imagine when he said, go and make disciples, what they thought they were about to go do. All, all that they knew to do to make disciples was what Jesus had done to them to make them disciples. And what Jesus had done with them is what we're looking at here. Now, I I recognize that there's interactions that Jesus has with his disciples. There's uh, interactions Jesus has with the perceived saints and with uh, sick and with the sinners. And these are all four sort of different categories in how he speaks to people. He even speaks a little bit different to politicians at the end of John, in John 18 and 19. He speaks a little bit different in that way. But here's the cool thing. The disciples watched Jesus and they went and modeled Jesus. The question for us today is this, have you ever read through scripture, identifying how Jesus engages the sick, sinners, and, law, and, and saints, and, and asked yourself the question, should I do that too? What did Jesus do, and should I do that too? I think the greatest miracle of all time, Luke 23, 44 through 49, Luke 23. And you have to, after last week, seeing this consistently, that when miracles happen, salvation happens, people bring glory to God, you have to come to Luke 23 and go, okay, I think Luke's trying to tell us something. Y'all, this is all the same writer, and he's writing in the same way. Luke's trying to tell us something. Luke 23, 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until 3. And remember, Jesus is on the cross at this time because the sun's light failed. The The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. But off to the side, here's a centurion. Now, remember, centurions, right? Centurions were, for the Romans, centurions supported what the Romans wanted to do. Most likely, this centurion probably led Jesus to the cross, to his own cross, maybe even put Jesus on the cross. We don't know the details. All we know is this centurion was there. We know that he walked with Jesus through this process because he... It says he saw what happened. He saw everything that took place. In verse 47, it says, when this centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying this man really was righteous. You see, when miracles happen, people bring glory to God. All throughout Luke, salvation, miracle, glory to God. Salvation, miracle, glory to God. You have to come away from this uh, book and really think through, is this the tactic that Jesus was using to change culture? Is this the tactic that Jesus was using to change lives? And if this is the tactic that Jesus is using, should we do it too? What would Jesus do if he would do this? Should we do this too? In our world, we have plenty of people who disagree with the way our culture is headed, right? but I want to continually point us to the only one who can save. You'll hear me every week throughout this series point to somebody. His name is Jesus, and I believe he's the only one who can save us from the issues and from the problems that we face in this world today. You could fight with all sorts of tactics. You might, have, you might feel like you have enough money. You might feel like you have enough guns to fight. You might feel like you have enough p- political persuasion, social media persuasion. Answers with health care. You might feel like you have all the right tactics. But if you aren't sitting with the sick and sinners who are far from Jesus, then you probably aren't following Jesus. You see, that's the issue. What we have done is we've tried to create all these different tactics to try to change the world, and we've abandoned the tactic that Jesus had for us. And maybe you haven't. Maybe you're sitting in here today and you haven't abandoned this tactic, but I I just want to press in a little bit and ask a little bit further, when's the last time you pulled up a seat beside you and asked someone who is a sinner like you know we are, sinners like us, redeemed by God, when's the last time you asked someone to come sit beside you and walked with them through life? When's the last time you sat down with somebody and told them of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and spoke truth and love? When's the last time you sat down with somebody who's so far culturally outside of who you are used to sitting down with that people might say the same things that they said about Jesus? You're a drunkard and a glutton. You're a a friend of sinners. You see, they missed Jesus and they're probably going to miss you too. But let's not be unfaithful to abandon the tactics Jesus gave us and try for different tactics when it pushes us away from Jesus. You see, we can fight with all sorts of tactics, but if you aren't sitting with the sick and sinners who are far from Jesus, then you probably aren't following Jesus. Imagine if we lead the culture to change. We get all the right actions. The whole world adopts Judeo-Christian values and does exactly what the Word of God says to do with all the rituals and all the the different things. And then when Jesus comes to save them, they say they're all good. We do everything right and holy. And they completely miss a relationship with Jesus. You see, if your goal is just to make people perfect— they're always going to miss the one who is perfect. And if we miss the tactics that Jesus gave us, we will never do what Christ has called us to do, to sit with the sick and the sinners. Sinners like us who have fallen short and struggled, who Jesus came to and rescued. So what would Jesus do? He'd rescue sinners. Yeah. You've heard me say this once. You'll hear me say this multiple times. Because when we ask the question, what would Jesus do? We have to consistently see what he literally did. Now, what is it? What is, uh, what are we used to doing? What is the typical norm of the, of the church? You got two camps, right? Condemn or conform. So here's what happens. Typically, we let people sit down in chairs and we stand from afar And we preach truth. Change your life. Deny yourself. Reject all that you've done. Separate yourself out from those people. Live a better life. Do what God has called you to do. But what did Jesus do? That's the question. What would Jesus do? Rather than sitting afar, he would come and he would ask somebody to grab a seat with him. He would share grace and truth. He would speak truth in love. You see, Jesus would do it so dramatically different than the church today that both groups would go, you're a glutton and a drunkard. And the other group would go, you're legalistic. Nobody would like Jesus. And if you don't choose to condemn or to conform, nobody's going to like you either. And Jesus said it himself, the world will reject you. But I challenge you this morning to this. Find the tactic Jesus took and do it because we are disciples of Christ, not of this world. Remember this, as the band comes, remember this, you belong in this decade because Jesus has you here for a reason. You may be in a, in a difficult season of your life. You may say, man, I have been so, this is the hardest season of my life I've ever been in with sickness, with struggle, with sin. You may say, this is the hardest season I've ever been in my life. Or maybe you'd say, this is the worst culture I've ever seen in my life. Remember this. You were never created for this. You weren't created for sickness and you weren't created for sin. Every time you feel lost and foreign in this world, it's because you are citizens of heaven. You were created for perfection and life, and yet we experience imperfection and death. This isn't what we were supposed to have. That's why it feels so weird. That's why it feels foreign. That's why we reject it. That's why we push away from it, because it's not the way it was supposed to be. We are citizens of heaven, but you have to remember this. Jesus, the humble king, stepped down out of heaven into earth to live a life, to die a death, and to raise from the dead. That means he had to face temptation. That means he had to face death. And it means that us, we today in this church, are going to face temptation and we're going to face death. We're going to face sickness. But as we do, we're going to ask the same question when we're lost in a foreign land, citizens of heaven, what would Jesus do? And will we do that too? So I have three gospel responses for you this morning. First, would you invite someone to your house or to coffee shop, restaurant, whatever it may be, who, who is just outside of your normal inviting? Just change up your pattern, your day, your week. Shift it up a little bit and invite someone into a relationship and conversation with you who you can share grace and truth uh, and speak that truth in love. Would you invite somebody who is considered the outcast of the church or the outcast of the culture into your life that you might be Christ to them? The second thing I would challenge you to do, really practical, is to read a book on God's mercy. Maybe a book like Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. Uh, I I would also challenge you this really practical. Would you read through every time that Jesus talks with, uh, with the sick or sinners? Sinners like us. I have, uh, I have this documented. I have every time that Jesus engaged. You can do this too. All you gotta do is work through your Bible and look at the red letters and go above it and say, who is he speaking to? If you'll identify every time Jesus talked with the sick and the sinners, maybe it will help us, help me in how we engage with those who are lost and dying in a broken world. And maybe in God's grace, we'll find the tactic that God has for us, not the tactic that this world has for us. Y'all with me? I got a couple with me. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. All right, I'll close with this. We've got thousands, millions who are trusting in a president to save them. Whether they're red or blue. We've got millions that will trust in the dollar bill to save them. No matter how much it's worth today, we've got millions who will trust in a shot or a, a surgery or a diagnosis to save them. We have a lot of people that will trust in a lot of different tactics to save. Today, I want to ask you the question Have you ever trusted Jesus' tactic to change the world? That maybe he did it different. And that we can't let this world dictate how we will live. So what did Jesus do? He sat down with the saints and the sick and the sinners. And he rescued. Let me pray for you. God, would you change our hearts for those who have been away from you. 18 years, 30 years, 50 years separated from you. Would you show them the compassion and the grace and the mercy that you have? God, for those in this room who have experienced your grace and mercy, I pray, God, that you would raise them up to be different than this world. God, we know there's millions who have different tactics. I pray, God, that just maybe there's a hundred in this room that will take up your tactic. I pray, God, that you would not force us to condemn or to conform but rather help us to transform help us to preach your Holy Spirit in people's lives your grace freeing people to be able to say man or woman you are free from the bondage of sin to preach victory over sin to preach victory over death in the name of Jesus God would you raise up a force in this room a fighting force that de- denies the things of this world and takes up your cross, that we might live according to what you have for us and not the things of this world, that they might live according to your grace and gospel and the Holy Spirit at work in them. I pray, Father, that as you raise up this army of soldiers who love and bear mercy on their chest and in their voice speak truth and love, God, that it would change the world to bring glory to you. God, would you receive the glory in all this? And we pray this in your son's
1: name. Amen.
2: glory
0: in church. Remember your sin in the midst of darkness to light it up. I pray you have a great week and we'll see y'all next week. you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ
1: and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.